You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so today we are taking another step through the early chapters of the book of Genesis. So uh, let me just take a step back and just again answer, where are we in the larger story of Genesis? Where do we find ourselves today? Uh, Well, here's uh, one way to describe where we find ourselves in chapter 5. We are, at this point in the story, east of Eden. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents ate the forbidden fruit. And with that forbidden fruit, sin broke into God's good creation. And when sin broke in, it broke everything. This is sort of the theme. This is what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. It broke everything. Uh, It it is impossible to overstate the catastrophe of Genesis chapter 3. Impossible. There are no words to state the catastrophe that is. And part of the catastrophe of Genesis chapter 3 is that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they lost their place. They were kicked out of the garden. So when you finish Genesis chapter 3, it finishes in, in verse 24. Here's what we read. It says, he, talking about God, he, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They lost the presence of God. They lost the place that God had made for them. And when you get to the end of Genesis 3, the end of verse 24, the Bible is um, trying to get you to a place where you are on the edge of your seat. And now you're asking that question. What are they going to do? Well, what's going to happen to our first parents? What's going to happen to Adam and Eve? What is life outside of the garden going to be like? What is life east of Eden going to be full of? In many ways, that is the question the next few chapters in the Bible, chapters 4 and 5, are aiming to answer for us. I said this a couple of weeks ago that when you get to Genesis chapter 4, and Genesis chapter 5 would be very similar in this regard, um, they are like a, a movie trailer. Now, what is a movie trailer doing? It's, it's giving you a preview of coming attractions. Uh, when you just look at that little, you know, two-minute clip, you're getting a sense of what that two-hour movie is going to be like. And that is what Genesis chapter 4 and 5 are. You're getting a small little scene here in Genesis 4 and 5. And that small scene, that small little clip is giving you uh, sort of a sense of what the larger storyline of the Bible has in store. And so we've spent the last two weeks in Genesis chapter 4. The first half of that chapter, it shows this picture of sin and grace. This is what life east of Eden is going to be full of. Sin and grace. Sin. Cain kills his brother Abel. Just a grievous sin. So you have sin, then you have grace. God brings amazing grace to Cain. He provides for him. He still protects him, even in the worst of his sin. East of Eden, this is what life is like. Man brings mounds and mounds of sin, and God brings mounds and mounds of grace. Life east of Eden is marinated in those two words, sin and grace. Uh, Then last week, Jimmy covered the second half of chapter 4. East of Eden, uh, people in Aitli live like Cain. In chapter 4, verse 16, it says that he went away from the presence of the Lord. East of Eden, this is what life is like. There is an innate sort of desire in every human heart now to live autonomous, to live away from God. 
And Genesis chapter 4 shows us that even in our autonomy, we can still accomplish it's amazing all the stuff that Cain's descendants are accomplishing. You've got city building, you've got the arts, you've got agriculture, you've got the creation of tools to make life easier for us. You've got all of these things happening in their autonomy. Even in their autonomy, they are accomplishing, but they couldn't accomplish their way out of the curse. You get to Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, and he doubles down, you know, he doubles down on the sin of Cain, right? He introduces the distortion of marriage. Then he, he boasts in murder. For all of their accomplishments, they just kept descending deeper and deeper down into the abyss of the curse, the abyss of sin. And now we get to Genesis chapter 5. Now just ask yourself the question, what is it showing us about life East of Eden. I just want you to think about that question as you're thinking about what you just heard read. What does Genesis chapter 5 show us about our life out of the garden? Your life, my life, what does it show us about life? And I want you to notice two things from this text today. Uh, two things that this teaches us about life east of Eden. And here is the first thing I want you to notice. This text is showing us that death is a problem that death is a problem. There is one phrase that is continually repeated in Genesis chapter five. And I want you to grab your Bible, open, make sure you've got it there on your lap, and I want you to follow along. And I just wanna point out this repeated phrase. And if you've got something to underline, uh, why don't you underline th this phrase every time it shows up. Underline these three words. You see it first in Genesis chapter five, verse five. Do you see it? And he what? He died. Uh, then you see it again in verse 8, and he died. Then you see it again in verse 11, and he died. Then again in verse 14, and he died. Then again in verse 17, and he died. Then again in verse 20, and he died. Then again in verse 27, and he died. Then again, again in verse 31, and he what? He died. And he died shows up eight times in Genesis chapter 5. Eight times. Now, when, it, when something shows up eight times in one chapter, it should make us step back and ask the question, what is this text trying to show us? If something shows up eight times, it probably has something that it's wanting us to see in this text. So, so why does, and he died, showed up eight times? Well, in part, this genealogy is, is showing us how we get to Jesus. It's tracing Adam to Noah. Then it's going to give us Noah to Abraham. Then it's going to eventually give us Abraham all the way to the person of Jesus. But that's not all these genealogies are showing us in the Bible. Genesis 5 is showing us what happens to everyone. Everyone. Unless you're like Enoch and you get just kind of caught up to Jesus, or Jesus comes back before you die. This is what happens to everyone east of Eden. One day, the end of our story on earth will have these three words to describe it. And he died. And she died. This text, Genesis chapter 5, is holding out death, death in front of us to take a long, uncomfortable look at. 
That, that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to take that long, uncomfortable look at death. Genesis 5 wants us to see death is a problem. It is an unavoidable problem. When is the last time you have thought about death? But when's the last time you've let your heart go there to, to think about death? Blaise Pascal in the Pensies, a book he wrote years ago, he sees the problem rightly. This is just a horrible but, but true picture of the human condition. Listen to what he says about it. He says, imagine a number of men in chains, all under the sentence of death, some of whom are butchered each day in the sight of others. Those remaining see their own condition and that of their fellows and looking at each other with grief and despair await their turn. He says, this is an image of the human condition. That is a horrible image, isn't it? But it's, it's the image of the, of the human condition. East of Eden, every human being lives under the sentence of death. From our first to final breath, we all live under the shadow of death. But if you're like me, you'll do everything you can to avoid it, to ignore it. To pretend like it's not over there staring at us, right? We'll do everything we can to avoid that. We all know that experience when we've been in something like the grocery store. And from across the store, you see that person. And your first thought when you see that person is, that's the, the top of the list person of like the person I didn't want to see and don't want to talk to. So what do you do in that moment? You turn your head and act like you didn't see them. Now, that is a great picture of how we treat death. We ignore it, just hoping that death will ignore us. If you're like me, you do everything possible to ignore that shadow, right? And there's a reason for this in the scriptures. In the scriptures, death is not presented as a friend to be cherished, but as an enemy to be destroyed. This is how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's an enemy, not, not, a, not a friend of ours to be cherished. It's an enemy to be destroyed, Paul is saying. And, and here's the reason that we all hate the enemy of death. We hate death because death is horrible. That, that's why we hate death. Think about what death does for me. Are we all sufficiently cheered up yet? Right? I mean, it's pretty depressing, isn't it? But, but think for a minute about what death does. Over time, death strips everyone of everything. D just hear that for a minute. This is what death does. Over time, it strips everyone of everything. So think of death less like sort of a single moment at the point of your life and more like a process that culminates in the end of your life. And, and over the, the sort of journey of your life, it is just stripping you from one thing after another until that final stripping. But it's that long process of stripping away Death eats away at everything that we love. Give it enough time and death will strip you of your health. Give it enough time and death will strip you of your physical capabilities. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but 28 is like as good as it gets as a human being. <laughs> That's depressing, isn't it? 
For many of us, 28's a long time ago. And that's as good as it gets. Death has a way of stripping us from our physical capability. It has a way of stripping us of our mental capability. It strips us of our ability to work. Given enough time, it will strip you of everyone that you love and of everything that you love doing. Death has no heart. It strips everyone of everything. And death has no respect. It has no respect for wealth, no respect for what you have or haven't accomplished in your life. It has no respect for the richness of your relationships. Death eats everything, everything. Uh, which is why billionaire Boone Pickens in um, a last letter, this is right before he died at the age of 91. And listen, he's a billionaire, right? He's got it all. At his last letter, this is one of the things he said in it. He said, I'd give my wealth and success. I'd give my, he says, 68,000 acre ranch. I'd give my private jet all for the chance to start over in life. But death makes no deals. And death is so horrible. This is why we hate it, because death is horrible. And death is so horrible that we have become experts at hiding from death. Uh, we live, this is one way you could think about our culture. Uh, we live in a culture of death deniers. That's just kind of the cultural ethos that, that we live in. Uh, one author is right when he says, the modern mood is to live life as if death is not waiting for us at the end. That's just the normative way people live, as if death isn't waiting for them. And our culture has discipled us all well. When is the last time you've had a serious conversation about death? How many sermons over the course of your life have you heard about death? We have this way of living as if death is not coming for us. We have become professional death deniers. And how can we deny something like death? Well, one reason is because the experience of death has changed so much over the last 150 years. Uh, think about this for a moment. Uh, the experience of death has shifted from a familiar event in a familiar place to an unfamiliar event in an unfamiliar place. Uh, just imagine the moment of someone dying 200 years ago. Uh, where did that person die? in their bedroom, that's where they died. Um, who was their doctor? Essentially their spouse was. Who were their nurses? Essentially their kids were, right? It's all happening in that very familiar place. Death didn't happen in a hospital. Your family was at your bed. They watched your last breath. And when you died, they didn't call a funeral director. They cared for your body, right? They dug a grave. They laid you in the grave. 200 years ago, in many ways, it was just impossible to hide from death. This is why 200 years ago, you heard so many more sermons on death. It's why uh, it was a much more normative part of conversation a couple hundred years ago. Because 200 years ago, you couldn't hide from death. But what was impossible then is possible now. We've professionalized death. We can stay at a distance from death as doctors and nurses and funeral homes do all the sort of up-close and personal work. We've, uh, in many ways, just arranged our world to work in a way where we avoid making eye contact with death. 
But the Bible is clear. You can hide from death, but death will eventually find you. And he died. Can you say that again with me? And he died. Death is an unavoidable problem. And friends, you can ignore death all you want, but it will not ignore you forever. Eat all the broccoli you want, hit the gym, pound the vitamins, sniff all that essential oils you want, right? <laughs> Do it all. But this will be the final three words of your life here on earth. And he died. Uh, can I ask you just a straightforward question? Do you know that you're going to die? H have you looked at that square on and come to that realization that you are going to die? Remember that image from Blaise Pascal, that we are all in chains under the sentence of death. And if we'll look around, we'll see, he says, people butchered by it periodically, right? And we're all supposed to identify in their story, in that butchering, knowing we're all awaiting the same sentence. Do you know that you're going to die? We have a tendency to live as if we're immortal, as if death is not waiting for us in the end, but that's not true. Death is an unavoidable problem, and he died. Now, one of the things I'm really thankful for about the scriptures is it doesn't just, it just tell us that death is coming. It also tells us where death came from. What is the origin story of death? Where did death come from? And here's the Bible's answer to where did death come from? The Bible's answer is, death entered through disobedience. Death came from disobedience. So let's just think back to the opening chapters of Genesis. We've covered some of this uh, terrain already. Uh, after preparing a place for our first parents, God put them in the place. And in this garden full of yeses, God has one no for our first parents. Just one. I mean, just think about that. Do anything you want, just not this. That, that, that was God's one prohibition. And, and here it is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Uh, the scriptures say, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Adam and Eve could not see through sin's sort of just deceptive lies, right? All the sort of seductive lies that sin was giving, and they ate the forbidden fruit. And through that one moment of disobedience, death rushed in. Uh, here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death has attached itself to disobedience and it has spread to us all. Or as Paul says so clearly in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death, for the wages of sin is death. You can think about Genesis 5 as a storied presentation of Romans 6.23. It is putting in story form for us, in a genealogy form, it's saying, this is what Romans 6.23 teaches, for the wages of sin is death. 
Now, let me take just a two and a half minute sidebar, and I want you to make sure you're, you're listening to the next couple of minutes uh, together here. Now, I want you just to think about something that the book of Romans shows us about sin. Uh, when the book of Romans is, is dealing with the issue of sin, it doesn't just see sin. Paul, he doesn't just see sin as an issue of right and wrong. He doesn't just see sin as a moment of like, okay, you've stepped across this line, this was wrong, this was right, and, and now you're across this, the line and you're in the wrong. He doesn't just see sin that way. It is that, but it's much more than that. When Paul thinks about sin, his dominant metaphor that he wants to stick in our brain, stick in our heart is life and death. When we choose sin, we choose death every time. The wages of sin is death, not just in this final huge moment at the end. In every part of our life, sin is death. Every time we say yes to sin, we are saying yes to death. So take Adam and Eve for a moment. In the moment of eating that forbidden fruit, they didn't die instantly. Right? That's not how it worked in the text. Their sin, eating that forbidden fruit, led to a thousand other deaths before their final death. Think about the deaths in their life. They experience the death of their intimacy with God. The death of their intimacy with one another. The death of that inner sense of security that they had previous to sin. They felt the death of living in the garden. They were kicked out of the garden. If you go to Genesis chapter 4, they experienced the death of their second son, Abel. The wages of sin is death every time. I, I don't know how it will show up in your life, but, but sin every time leads to death. The wages of sin is death. Every time when you say yes to sin, you are saying yes to death. And this is one of the, the motives the Bible gives for saying no to sin. Why do you say no to sin? Because every time you say yes to sin, you are saying yes to death somewhere in your life. If you're married, in your marriage, if you've got kids, in your parents, you're just, you're saying yes to death somewhere. I don't know where it'll show up with that particular yes to sin, but it's going to show up somewhere in your life. This is the point that James makes. In James chapter 1, verse 15, he talks about this sin this way. Listen to how he talks about it. He says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, grown brings forth death. Uh, what imagery? right? Sin is going to always be pregnant with death when it grows up. When sin grows up and becomes a, a man, right? When that moment happens, that man has a name and its name is death. Every time. When we say yes to sin, we say yes to death because the wages of sin is death. And I just wonder how many of us this morning need that warning. You are flirting with sin. Or right now you are saying yes to sin in your life, not realizing you are saying yes to death in your life. When you think about whatever that sin is right now happening in your life, you, you think of it as, um, I, I'm just walking across this, this arbitrary line. I, I was doing right, but now I'm evidently doing wrong. That is not the 
way the Bible sees it. The Bible is looking at you today and saying, no, what you're doing is not just stepping across some arbitrary line. You are choosing death in your life. Yeah, and friends, I just want to look at you and say, please, by the grace of God, don't choose death. Choose life. This is why the Bible says you're either going to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Because the wages of sin is death. It is death in your life. Sidebar finished. I'm thankful that the scriptures don't just tell us that death is coming, but where death came from. Death came through disobedience. But I'm also thankful that the Bible doesn't just tell us where death came from, but it also tells us what death is for. What death is for. And here's the Bible's answer to the purpose of death, what death is for. Death is punishment for human pride. It's punishment for human pride. I love how one author says it. He says it this way. Death is punishment perfectly tailored to fit the crime of human sin. That's what death is. It's a punishment perfectly tailored to fit human sin. Now, to understand why that would be true, we first just have to get in our mind that sin is so much bigger than we typically give it credit for. Again, it is bigger than just crossing some arbitrary line. No, sin in the scriptures is treason against God. That's what sin is. Uh, I love how J.R. Packer puts it. He says, uh, sin is a spirit of fighting God in order to play God. Every time we sin, we are looking at God and saying, hey God, you are not the most important being in the universe. I am. Uh, God, you're not going to be God today. I am. Uh, God, this world is not going to revolve around you today. It's going to revolve around me today, God. Uh, God, what you want is not of supreme importance. God, what I want is of supreme importance. That's sin. It's us fighting God in order to play God. It, it's treason against God. That's sin. At the core of every single sin in our life is pride. It's that heart that's saying, God, I don't care what you want because I'm the authority here, not you. What I desire is supreme, not what you desire. What I demand wins, not what you demand, oh God. That's sin. And death is perfectly tailored to punish human pride. Think about what death says to us. What, what is death saying to us? Here's one way to put it. Death is saying to us all, you are not as important as you think. Isn't that sobering? I mean, I've cried this week just thinking about how terrible this is. It's telling us you are not as important as you think. Uh, Matthew McCullough in his book, Remember Death, he says it this way. He says, there is a narcissism in each of us that tells us the world can't go on without us. We innately see ourselves as the lead character in the story of the world. But not only will the world keep going on without us, eventually it will not remember us at all. Death 
is preaching a sermon to us. And here's the sermon that it's preaching. You are not as important as you think. I am not as important as I think. We, we all believe or maybe hope that in the moment that we stop breathing, the world will stop spinning. It's not true. It's not true. Years ago, I was sitting in a hospital with a dear friend who was dying. And in that hospital room, I watched him take his last breath. And in that room, it felt like the world stopped. If you've ever been in that room and seen that, I mean, you, you know, the, it's like the floor just drops out of the room. And I remembered in that moment of just feeling the, the weightlessness of death's sermon, that you are not as important as you think. I remember in that moment looking out the window and right out of the window, there's this really busy highway. And I'm literally in this room where the world has stopped and I'm looking out that window and I'm watching hundreds, if not thousands of cars speed by. And that's death's sermon. The world's not stopping for you. The world doesn't slow down for you because you're not as important as you think. And not only will it not slow down for you, it will not remember you. I love how one author puts it. He says, death boots me from my self-appointed place at the center of the universe. Death reminds us that we are not as important as we think. When you die, it won't take long for you to be forgotten. Um, think about the years uh, 1800 to 1899, right? Those roughly, that, that century, that 100-year span. Um, people estimate that there were about 6 billion people who lived somewhere in that century. 6 billion people were alive at some point in those 100 years. H how many names can you remember from 1800 to 1899? Five, 10, 20, maybe. If you're like a real history buff in the room, maybe you got 100, right? M maybe you got 200. Out of 6 billion, right? Six, 6 billion. What is that telling us? It's just death saying you're not as important as you think. You're going to die one day and you're going to be forgotten. If you want to bring this closer to home, um, think about your own family. What's your great-great-grandfather's name? Unless you're like a 23andMe person all in that, up in that genealogy stuff. You know what? You have no idea what your great-great-grandfather's name was. No idea. That's 100 to 120 years of your own personal family history. Right? Your, your, your personal family history. And you've got no idea. If you just fast forward another 100, another 120 years, your descendants, that, that great, great, great grandchildren, you're going to have no idea who you are. It's just death saying, you're not as important as you think. Can you now see why death is our problem? The horror of death? The, the problem of death? Death will not allow us to deny it forever. And when we face the brutal reality of death, it takes us 
all the way down into the darkness of despair. And in some ways, that's what Genesis 5 is meant to do. Take us all the way down into death's despair. And friends, once you've arrived there in the despair of death, then we are ready to see why the good news of Jesus is such good news. But, but it's not until then. Until we see the horror of death, we can't see the beauty of Jesus. We can't do it. But here's the two things this text wants to show us. It's not just that death is a problem. It's also that deliverance is provided. Yes, death is a problem. It's a problem you can't ignore. You can't deny forever. It is a problem. But here is the great news of the scriptures. Deliverance is provided. The Bible, think about the Bible as a whole for a minute. It's telling one big story. And here's one way to describe the one big story that the Bible teaches. Is it's a story of Jesus doing what we desperately need but cannot do. And here's what that is. We need someone to kill death. We need someone to swallow death, to defeat death, to destroy death. And that's the story of the Bible. It's Jesus coming to destroy that last enemy of death. And two verses in this text open up that story to us. Look at verses 28 and 29. When Lamech, not to be confused with Cain's Lamech, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Our man Lamech fathered a son. His son's name was Noah. And Lamech looked upon Noah, like most parents do, with such joyful anticipation. He looked upon Noah and thought, this is the one. Surely this will be the one who brings us relief, who brings us deliverance. And we'll see next week that Noah does bring some temporary relief and deliverance. He does bring some of that. But when we set this scene in the larger story of the scriptures, it is obvious that Noah is pointing beyond himself to the one his genealogy leads to, the person of Jesus. And what Jesus brings, not temporal relief, not temporal deliverance, but eternal deliverance. It is pointing us to that person, the person of Jesus. Listen again to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Every time. There are no exceptions. For the wages of sin is death. But aren't we glad that's not where the verse ends? That there's more to that verse. The wages of sin is death. But, but the, the free gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death always pays a wage, and that wage, our sin always pays a wage, and that, that wage is death. And when our first parents ate the forbidden fruit, hanging from that tree, death invaded, spreading to us all. But 2,000 years ago, God came back to deal with death. Jesus lived a perfect life, 33 years Every command of God, 
yes. No disobedience through which death could, could worm his way into the life of Jesus. He lived a perfect life and then Jesus hung from that forbidden tree, that cursed tree, and he received the death that our sin deserves. And then on the third day, he walked out of the grave. He defeated death. Jesus defeated death, our last enemy. And friends, we have been invited to join in and share in the spoils of Jesus's victory. There are two sermons being preached in Genesis chapter 5. One is death's sermon. And here's death's sermon. You are not as important as you think. It's a true sermon. Death is saying a true thing to us. You are not as important as you think. But Jesus also has a sermon in Genesis chapter 5. Jesus is looking at us and preaching this sermon. Yeah, you are not as important as you think, but you are much more loved than you think. I have come to give my life to defeat death for you, to have victory over death so that you can now share in the spoils of my victory. Look at those two words in Romans 6.23. Look at those two words, eternal life. That's the promise Jesus makes, eternal life. What, what could be a better promise? For, for everyone who has had everything stripped from them by death, what, what promise could Jesus make that would be more precious? For, for those who have experienced the accumulation of losses in your life. I mean, you're sitting here today and you have received loss after loss after loss, stripping after stripping after stripping from our enemy of death. You, you've received that. What could be a more precious promise after all of those losses than this one? Eternal life. That is life forever with Jesus. With every loss repaid. With no fear of future death. With new bodies that don't wear out at 28, right? In a new place with untold wonders for our hearts to explore. And friends, if, if that, if eternal life feels, if it feels abstract to you, if it feels like, uh, almost like a distraction from what your heart really wants in this world, then here's what that means. It means that you are denying your death. That, that you have not gazed long enough at the horror of death. It means that you're still pretending your story isn't going to end. And he died. And she died. But when we see our story is ending there, this promise comes to life for us. Eternal life becomes something wonderful for us. Eternal life, that promise, eternal life transforms the dark shadow of death into a doorway. That's what eternal life does. This is what the work of Jesus has done. Jesus comes and, and he transforms death for us. He says, no, it's not death who's got the final say now. Now it's eternal life who has the final say. Now it's me who has the final say. It, it turns that dark shadow of death into a doorway. And through the door, the wedding reception is in full swing where our groom, King Jesus, will one day welcome us in. And friends, if you can just even today put your ear to the door, 
And you put your ear to the door by keeping your nose in the Bible and reading it and seeing what Jesus has to say about death and the life to come, about eternal life. But if you put yourself, you put your ear to the, to the door called death, here's what you're going to find on the other side. You're going to find yourself hearing joyful shouts from the other side of that room. You can't see it yet, but you can hear it on the other side of that door. Joyful shouts. You can hear the laughter through that door called death. You can hear the music of God's grace playing on the other door, or other side of that door called death. Eternal life. What could be a more precious promise? Look at those two words, free gift. Eternal life was paid in full by Jesus. And here's what that means. There is no earning eternal life. There's only receiving eternal life. Karma will not get you into eternal life. You doing enough good to sort of finagle some good out of God will not get you eternal life. There is only one way. It's to come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. That's the only way. It's a free gift. Look, look at those two words, in Christ. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. To get in on this promise, you have to be in Christ. You have to be in Christ. In so many ways, this is the most important question of our life. Are we in Christ? Are you in Christ? Right now, there are only one of two options for your life. Either you are in Christ and therefore in this promise, or you are outside of Christ and you are still in the chains of death under the sentence of death. That is the only two options for your life. Part of what Genesis 5 is meant to help us feel on a morning like this, it's meant to make us feel that if we have everything, everything, but we don't have Jesus, then in the end, we have nothing. And on the other hand, if we have nothing right now in our life, but we have Jesus, then in the end, we have everything. That's what Genesis 5 is meant to help us feel. That this is what death is screaming at us. I will take everything from you, but the one thing it cannot take is Jesus. Let me finish here. Years ago, a London businessman, his name was Henry Goodyear. He was a living, breathing death denier. I mean, he hadn't thought about death for three seconds in his life. He had not thought about Jesus twice in his life. But one Sunday, uh, just to please his niece, he went to church. And his niece was so disappointed. They read the scriptures that morning. And do you know the scriptures that they read? Genesis chapter 5, a list of names for crying out loud. She just it was beside herself. How in the world could they spend a Sunday morning in a genealogy? What, what are they doing? Why is this the text for this morning when my uncle came? But as they walked home that day, she had no idea that her uncle could not get these three words out of his mind. And he died. And he died. The next day he went to work, but he couldn't work. 
The next night, he tried to go to sleep, but he couldn't sleep. And he broke open his Bible and read again those words. And he died. And he died. And then he said to himself, Now I'm living, but someday I too must die. And then where will I spend forever? And that night, he offered his life to Jesus. And friends, this could be your morning to offer your life to Jesus, the one who makes the promise of eternal life. Would you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful this morning, to wipe away what wouldn't be. And Gosh, what a sobering topic this morning. What a, what a heavy thing to consider. And I just want to encourage you not to turn away too fast. Genesis 5 sets death before us. And it asks us to stare at it, to gaze upon it, to listen to it. We cannot ignore it forever because it will not ignore you forever. Have you trusted in the person of Jesus for eternal life? There's no more important question in your life. There's no more urgent issue in your life. And see, this is what we all do. We all give ourselves a little longer leash. Yeah, death's coming, but that's years away. That's decades away. Friend, you don't know when death will knock at your door. I don't know when it'll knock at my door. So what could be more urgent than you stepping into the person of Jesus, than, than your life moving from outside of Jesus to inside of Christ, but where that promise reigns over human lives. Outside of Christ, we are still under the sentence of death. Inside of Christ, we are under the promise of eternal life. Friends, there's nothing more urgent and if God has brought you here, which he has this morning, it's to deal with this question, for you to settle this issue, for you to take that decisive step, moving your life across the line with Jesus. And if that's you, just there where you are right now, you can call out to Jesus. Do not live, leave here under the sentence of death. Don't do it. Offer your life to him. Turn from your sin, throw your life upon him, ask God to rescue you, 
tell God that you're trusting the person of Jesus. Here's my life, save me. Oh God, would you do that saving work right here in this moment? Oh God, would